Hey, this is the 10th edition of the Free City Radio podcast. Uh, Thanks for being with us. On the show today, I wanted to uh, begin with a local issue here in Montreal. Um, There's been a campaign that is being organized out of the Immigrant Workers Centre and supported by a broader community. I'm part of that and I wanted to share um, some points about it. Um, So full disclosure there. It's a campaign to support the workers at uh, the Dollarama Warehouse Distribution um, Centers. So I'm here at the Immigrant Workers Center right now. You can hear Van Horn Avenue outside uh, here in Montreal. Um, This is where some of the meetings took place to start organizing this campaign even prior to the pandemic. But the campaign became more important uh, recently because the conditions in the warehouses are pretty important and serious to look at critically. Um, There's not a lot of air circulation. Uh, There's not a lot of social distancing. Mostly Dollarama outsources this work through temp agencies. There's been a lot of discussion about the workplace injustices associated to temp agencies over the last few years. And the Immigrant Workers Center uh, has been a central voice in drawing um, attention to that. But also... um, Many other organizations and labor unions, including the CSN here in Quebec, have drawn attention to the very um, unjust work conditions that often uh, workers hired through temp agencies here in Montreal area are facing. Um, So in the case of Dollarama, these distribution centers, so that's where the goods, the products that you see on the Dollarama shelf um, around shops in Montreal... Um, are compartmentalized, organized, and prepared to go into the stores. So it's not directly Dollarama that hires people, and they they have a bunch of legal loopholes to make sure that they're not legally responsible for the workers in the warehouses that the stores rely on. So it's a really um, roundabout way to avoid legal responsibility for worker rights. So... Uh, In the context of the pandemic, quite a few Dollarama workers have been speaking out about the conditions uh, and the dangers faced um, within these warehouse distribution centers. And uh, there was an action a few weeks ago where workers spoke out. Now, a lot of the workers who are in these warehouses are migrants, are asylum uh, seekers, refugees, um, and are immigrants. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios, situations that people are in. But what is important to note, and and this is in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, is a lot of the workers are from West Africa. There are also some workers from Haiti and other parts of the world too. But often a a big portion of workers in these uh, warehouses uh, where the goods of Dollarama are uh, prepared for distributions into the stores are black workers. Um, so the campaign to support the Dollarama workers is taking place in the context of the global Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and this is a very local Montreal, Quebec example of the ways that systemic racism um, affects black workers and immigrant workers. Um, so Today, I got the chance to speak with uh, the spokesperson of the uh, Ghanaian Action Committee for Status. Um, So this is a group of asylum seekers, mostly um, from Guinea, uh, Conakry, uh, who have been organizing over these past years to uh, fight for uh, their rights as refugees, as asylum seekers. But Mohammed also has worked in a Dollarama uh, warehouse distribution center. He's not working at one currently, but he has direct experience. So I thought it would be important to speak with him both as an activist, a community activist, but also as a former worker within a Dollarama warehouse distribution center about how it's been Uh, for him to have that experience and also why this current campaign to support the rights of warehouse workers 
in the Dollarama distribution centers, why it's important right now. So here's a discussion with Mohammed Berry. I'm at the Immigrant Workers Center with Mohammed Berry. Uh, we've talked before on CKUT radio. But right now in Montreal, there's Dollarama workers who are trying to demand their rights. Um, these are mostly warehouse workers uh, where the Dollarama stores uh, get their goods, their distribution centers. A lot of the workers in the Dollarama distribution centers are from Africa, West Africa specifically, and also from Haiti, but also other parts of the world. Um, We've worked together in terms of the Ghanaian community's um, struggle against deportations, but also some members of the Ghanaian community have been working in Dollarama warehouse. So I thought it'd be interesting to ask a bit about your experience. Hey. Hi, hi my name is Mehmet Berry. I'm a member of the Ghanaian community uh, from Africa as well, West Africa. I worked uh, in Dollarama warehouse so here for two weeks, which was uh, really crazy. There's, uh, it's not safety. Um, there's no proper training. Um, they don't don't they don't cover anything. The, they don't have any advantage for the workers in terms of okay it's, benefits. In terms of benefits like insurance and stuff, and even they're not even respectful <laughs> regarding the the, the employees. What do you mean? What do you they don't respect the employees because when you come uh, like five minutes late or three minutes late, they cut you 15 minutes. And when you, you stay, you're, just, you're not done. At, uh, my shift was from 3 to 11. 3 to 11. 11. At 11, if I'm not done what I was doing, I have to continue until I get, done, get it done. It takes me 15 to half an hour. They don't pay me. That's that's extra. And that's, even if even if you are injured inside, you cannot call the ambulance. You cannot call the police. Whatever you you're gonna be, otherwise you're gonna be fired. Yeah. It's not really safety. A lot of dust. And, um, I don't know during the pandemic, but usually they don't have any gloves. They don't have mask for the for the dust. And it's the 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 jagger the jagger. The forklifts they use, mm-hmm. and they don't train them properly. You know, they just that's why a lot of accident in there. But they, a lot of employees uh, who are working there are newcomers, but they don't know their right in Quebec or in Canada, or they have immigration issues. That's why they have to to work. They are created by the system to feed those uh, kind of companies. But it's uh, really a fucked up job. Well, I was thinking, like, you mentioned how before the pandemic in these warehouses, there wasn't a lot of safety protocols. I think they now have gloves and sanitizer. But still, in a building like that, where the air circulation is not good, like, could you describe a warehouse, like, one of where you worked for Dollarama? Like, how did the warehouse look? Uh, the warehouse is um, really big. It's hot inside. It's not, there's not air conditioning. They, they sit at some point, some corners, or vans, um, ventilators, sorry. And it's not fair, good en- it's not fair enough. Yeah, it's always hot. A lot of, it's there. the air is polluted, dust everywhere. Because it's, people are moving boxes and goods. moving boxes okay. and moving everything, you know, and uh, they don't clean. They just uh, they don't even map. They just broom, and and that's it. And they are not paid for the for do to do that. You just broom, uh, you just broom where you worked, and uh, that's it. Everyone broom where he worked. That's. It's not. It's really not organized. You know, they just care about money. And they don't care about safety and training. So, yeah. So, in terms of like a warehouse like that, you worked through an agency, right? Yes. So, so I mean, yeah. Could you just explain a bit about how that works? I mean, because Dollarama says, oh well, it's not our responsibility. We don't hire people directly who work in the warehouses. But like, how does that all work? 
because they always um, hire people through agency play, agency placement is i was working for for an agency placement called uh, thompson tramley okay this yeah they play the game they don't hire you because uh they know if they, you work there 90 days they gonna hire they have to hire you so when you work whenever you work like 60 days or they send you back home for few weeks and they call you back again yes they don't want to hire you because they decline the responsibility and the, the agency placement do it as as well hmm. because if they hired had people hired permanently they would have to grant rights exactly mm-hmm. yes, that they avoiding this only most of the time 95% the employees are from agency placement well yes, yes. and a lot of the workers as we talked about before A lot of the workers who work there are immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, a lot of people from West Africa, from Haiti, a lot of black workers. Could you describe the scene like of the people who are the people working in Dollarama warehouse because a lot of people go to Dollarama and they probably don't think, "Oh, well, how did these goods get here? Who who prepared them?" you know. Um I would say it's uh, mostly Africans and I think Oh, African all over the the Africa. Um, refugees, mm-hmm. sometimes newcomers. Even they have their resident permanency, but they are new. They don't know their right in Canada or in Quebec, but they don't know nothing about the system. That's why the, the agency placement take advantage of that. And some of them had have like um, immigration issue. They're working on the ground. Sure. Yeah, and. Uh, some of them as well they are refugees they scared to to demand their right in order not to be arrested or to be deported they think it's going to affect whatever they do going to affect the file immigration file which is not true which is not true yeah it has nothing to do with the immigration file um because it's just because of a right that they don't know so that's why the um, Dollarama is like exploiting them. Yeah, talk a bit more about like what do you want people to know about Dollarama's practice of using workers in these warehouses? What I want people to know, I uh, want them to know uh, Dollarama is not a safe place. It's not for for workers. It's uh it's really dangerous for the health. because only the dust is fair enough to make them sick beside that is the pandemic and they are not protected uh, the the number of the employees can, cannot allow them to respect um the the, dis- the social distancing between the employees is 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 impossible to respect it inside and if they don't wear mask does uh, the high risk to to catch the pan uh, the, the virus mm. and it's uh, re- really they slave in them that's the word yeah they they are working hard 100 times hard and they're making 100 times money than the dollarama than dollarama uh, employees because everyone is down paid minimum salary or less than that you know, it's really weird Mohammed thank you. You welcome. That was a discussion with uh, community organizer Mohammed Berry uh, who is a spokesperson for the Ghanaian Action Committee of uh, refugees uh, who have been fighting for status here in Canada over these past couple years. Um I wanted to uh speak with uh Mohammed in the context of a current campaign in Montreal to support the rights of Dollarama workers. uh because there are a lot of workers right now who are speaking out with the support of the immigrant workers center um to draw attention to the difficult labor conditions that they have within the Dollarama warehouse distribution centers a lot of those workers speaking out and working in the centers are african workers refugees new immigrants also there are haitian workers a lot of black workers So I wanted to highlight um 
this uh, struggle of the Dollarama workers in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. So now I'm going to go to a piece of music by a great Tunisian um, composer and musician, uh, Anwar Braham. Uh, this is a track called Kashif.
That was uh, Anwar Ibrahim um, with his piece, Kashif, here on Free City Radio Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. I'm your host, uh, Stefan Christoph. Um, now on the program, I wanted to uh, look at the Defund the Police campaign. Uh, this is a campaign that is really gaining ground across the United, United States, but also in Canada and around the world. Uh, in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, this campaign is really calling into question the massive budgets that police departments get um, and um, calling on that money to be distributed into other sectors in society, into health, into education, into um, community empowerment initiatives. Um, one voice from Chicago uh, that has been really vocal in supporting the Defund the Police campaign is Charlene Carruthers, uh, who is an author and a community activist who has been really uh, an important voice in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Charlene's book uh, that came out recently is called Unapologetic, a Black, Queer and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. Um, Charlene spoke about the current defund the police campaign and why it's important and some of the ideas that are pushing community activists to move forward with this uh, initiative. My name is Charlene Carruthers and I'm an organizer with the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, right now, our people across the country in organizations, in communities and various groups are calling for the defunding of local law enforcement agencies and police departments, and for those dollars and those resources to be invested in our communities. It's in recognition that the police do not actually create nor promote real public safety, and we know that there are actual alternatives, including quality edu public education, housing, jobs, mental health care, and transformative justice anti-violence programs that have the actual ability to address, uh, reduce, and prevent violence from happening. Can, on the point of the uh, investing the, the money, the public funds, uh, a lot of which... Um, basically come from the people back into community institutions, into educational institutions. That, can you highlight a bit more about um, why that's so important 
um, to consider when I see the defund the police campaign um, being talked about on the mainstream media. It seems like that sort of an extension of of looking at how people, I mean, how this defunding could support community institutions is not really focused on. Could you talk about that? For sure. So what we've seen happen in this country for decades, and one could also argue for well over a century, is a continued lack of investment in black communities. And so what that leads to, uh, this lack of investment, which is rooted in white supremacy, anti-blackness, patriarchy, and capitalism, then leads to uh, negative health incomes, uh, um, excuse me, negative health outcomes, um, a lack of access to quality public uh, quality education, lack of access to mental health care, um, lack of access to employment, and overall uh, just lack of of a consistency and availability to public safety beyond policing. And so our communities do not have what they need nor what we deserve. And I'm not just speaking of this abstractly. I'm speaking about the community I live in in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking blocks and blocks of vacant buildings. Um, one primary, we just got a major grocery store in our neighborhood mm-hmm. and, uh, our, our schools are consistently either, uh, closed or underfunded or in peril for various reasons. Meanwhile, the Chicago police department's budget is just over $1.7 billion, uh, annually. Wow. So uh, it's it's an astronomical number. It's about forty just about forty percent of our public service budget in New York City, and we NYPD gets around six billion dollars annually. Um, and I don't know the number for Los Angeles off top, but Chicago and Los Angeles are almost neck and neck for the second largest, second and third largest police departments in the country. Wow. And so we're talking about mat like bloated budgets, bloated police budgets, and frankly, um, suffering in on life support budgets for uh, services that actually create real public safety. The demand to defund the police and support public institutions, it's such a big step from the assertion Black Lives Matter into an actual challenge of government policy. Uh, Could you share a bit more from your perspective from Chicago, why that step to uh, actually challenge uh, policy is really important. Well, it's really important because we see this as a part of a long-term campaign, a long-term strategy to radically transform this country. And we know that policy is an important piece. And it's it, it, there, there's so much that needs to be changed. When we, get, when we get to talking about dollars and cents, those are absolutely things that need to be down on paper and, um, mm-hmm. and cemented through, through law. And so it's a part of a broader process to um, move political power, right? And also uh, expand political will to to create the kind of world that we need because the policy is connected to where resources go, where money goes. And where money goes is, uh, and our budgets are moral documents. And so where we put money in this country tells us what we care about, who is valued and what and, and, and what we think is possible and, and what is important. And so engaging on the in, in the policy fight around what defunding the police and investing in our communities has to look like, it, it's, it's an integral part in moving our long-term political vision and strategy, frankly, for the abolition of prisons and policing. Defunding police are, is one part of a, of a broader political vision for us and living in a world where conflict, harm, and violence are not handled by the police or prisons. Why is it important for people who are posting on their social media, Black Lives Matter, uh, sharing news and information, etc., about the protests to support like a campaign like Defund the Police that is, you know, very specific, which you've outlined, um, as a follow-up to just this assertion of support? Can you repeat that for me one more time? No problem. Um, Why is it important for 
I mean, right now there's this wave of support for the Black Lives Matter movement, um, mm -hmm. but the campaign that you're supporting um, to defund the police, to remove the financial resources from the police into community institutions, why is it important for people to, to make that, that step to support actively a campaign mm -hmm. Oh, like because it, it makes it more concrete. And it makes it, uh, it gives an opportunity, a clearer opportunity for people, for entry points, for people to contribute to something that will change the lives of folks. Like it will actually change the lives. It will reduce police contact. It will reduce greatly um, opportunities for police to be violent. It will also increase our access to resources, uh, a safer and more thriving communities. This isn't this is a, a concrete demand that can have concrete results for our people and improve people's lives. Thanks for articulating that right on. Um, how's it been going in Chicago? I would imagine that um, there's been, you know, consistent protests. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how it, how um, how it's been in the city. I mean, Democratic politicians are talking a lot right now in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, but there's a distance in terms of that public assertion and actual policy change. Absolutely, there's a wide gap between Mayor Lori, May, there is a wide gap between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and uh, her actions and what the community has been demanding. I'll give you one concrete example. Um, students in Chicago public schools are calling for the, de uh, the defunding of the Chicago Police Department in their schools. Right now, the Chicago Police Department has a $33 million contract um, to police our public school system, police within our public school system. Students don't want it. They want counselors, they want nurses, they want librarians, they want activities, they want, um, <laughs> buildings that are actually welcome and safe and have everything that they need. That's what they want. And so there's a camp and our, our mayor continues to uh, fail to act on this particular demand. And, you know, I'm not surprised uh, Mayor Lightfoot has consistently shown herself to be someone who is not at all aligned with um, uh, with black and progressive movements in the city of Chicago. Um. And the also Chicago Teachers Union has been really uh, uh, vocally um, calling for more funding for public education for years now. For years now. And you, uh, you may be aware of the more recent strike where they had to fight tooth and nail. Uh, for improvements in schools, for more access to services for students who don't who do who are houseless. It's it's been an uphill battle uh, with the mayor on issues that I mean, she she calls herself a progressive, but her actions show that she's actually quite uh, conservative and not concerned with what black and brown people uh, on the south and west sides and even north sides of Chicago uh, are dealing with when it comes to living in communities that are have been deeply divested from and not prioritized. That was an interview with Charlene Carruthers, uh, who is a community organizer and an activist in Chicago. Uh, Charlene is the author of a book called Unapologetic, A Black, Queer and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. And that was a very important discussion about um, uh, a movement taking place um, around uh, the the Americas really to push for the defunding of police in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement's calls for justice. Um, that is a movement that also has support here in Montreal, in Toronto, in many cities all over. Um, defund police is one of the hashtags. And now I wanted to go to um, a media project, a friend of Free City Radio in Brooklyn, out of Brick Media Arts, who host a podcast called Brooklyn USA. This is a podcast that is um, sharing voices, stories, art from Brooklyn. Um, and it's a letter from Brooklyn to the world. Brooklyn USA has been very active throughout the pandemic to share voices from around the world. And since the movement of protest uh, within the context of the Black Lives Matter movement has taken to the streets, um, Brooklyn USA uh, has been a center of protest and the podcast has been 
looking at voices that are participating in the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, who are participating in the movement to defund the police, um, who are participating in uh, this protest um, uh, wave that has been happening calling for justice. Um, so uh, Brooklyn USA sent us a segment that highlights some of the protests that have been happening and some of the voices that are part of the Black Lives Matter movement, part of the defund police movement in New York City and Brooklyn, but beyond. So this is a segment um, from Brooklyn USA podcast. I have been working in the community for over 20 years, and it is very obvious, particularly during this time, that we see police all the time. It is a job like any other job in the world, and they have to abide by the rules and their training, and then when not, there has to be severe consequences because it's the lives that we're dealing with. On May 13th, the Civilian Complaint Review Board the independent agency that investigates complaints against the NYPD, met to discuss the then-recent and highly publicized complaints of excessive and disparate measures officers were taking to enforce the city's social distancing rules. A week before the meeting, it was revealed that 35 of the 40 New Yorkers who had been arrested for social distancing violations were black, and that 80% of summonses were handed out to people who weren't white. We'd started working on this story a week prior, when footage of an NYPD officer slapping, dragging, tackling, and kneeling on the neck of 33-year-old Donnie Wright surfaced. And though the police commissioner insisted that the many complaints of racist policing could not be anything further from the truth, videos of Black and Hispanic residents being harassed and assaulted were in stark contrast to photos of officers handing out masks to white crowds in public parks. The piece was about the root causes of and solutions to social distancing over enforcement, and where this supposedly new problem fit into the long history of issues certain New Yorkers have always faced when dealing with the NYPD. Obviously, we're in a very unique moment socially and politically and economically and physically, but I think you have to just sort of pull back and, and look at where we are in general as far as policing in, in New York City. My name is Mark Winston Griffith. I am the executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center and also a steering committee member of Communities United for Police Reform. The idea that black and brown communities are over-policed should come as a surprise to no one. And it's certainly something that we've been fighting for a long time. And I think it, it comes from this idea that Police need to be involved on every level of public safety and public wellness. This increases the possibility that there's going to be some abuse of law enforcement that's going to result in some kind of lethal force that is demonstrated. Then, as predicted, the month ended with a show of force. The deaths of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and George Floyd, all within just over two months of each other and each at the hands of police officers, occurred as the country was still reeling from the death of Ahmaud Aubrey and the arrest of a suspect with a decades-long career in law enforcement for the crime. And while state-sanctioned violence against black human beings is, in this country, as old as the state itself, these brazen acts of racist brutality, some of which played out repeatedly in gruesome videos, took place in a country already on the brink. Over 100,000 Americans had contracted the virus, 40 million had been recently unemployed, and the federal government wasn't doing much to help. We were by and large confined to our homes and our phones or doing essential jobs in risky conditions. Summer was starting, days were longer and hotter, and for many, the rent was almost due. What came next was unexpected and unsurprising. A nationwide uprising in the name of black lives, spanning small towns and big cities in all 50 states. 
And in New York City, where almost 24,000 people had died from COVID-19, and where Black people were twice as likely to, the protests that started days earlier in Minneapolis hit the streets of Brooklyn on May 29th. And, as expected, the NYPD responded with the same excessive force they'd been criticized for implementing in the weeks prior. I had heard about the protest because I have a couple of friends that live down by the Barclays Center. And when I got there, it was probably around like 9.30. They were stationed kind of in multiple tiers. And then out of nowhere, just started grabbing and arresting anyone who was in the front. My name is Michelle. I live in Brooklyn. There was a number of people who I heard were literally either crossing the street, getting groceries, wanted to get Chick-fil-A. They incidentally arrested a lieutenant's wife. She was a black woman who happened to be in the area. A man grabbed me from behind in a crowd of people. He immediately threw me to the ground and eight men descended upon each part of my body. I am completely bruised and bloodied from it. I still don't have feeling in my hands entirely. And while that was happening, I had a lieutenant screaming in my face to just take it, which for everyone who has experienced violence in any way, knows those are the worst things you can say to someone. At the point that the police are involved, there's always going to be a heightened possibility of lethal force and abuse because police on an individual and social level just have an inordinate amount of power. And it's not just because they carry a gun, but it's because the policies in New York City and really across the land are structured so that police face as little accountability as possible. When police officers engage people, there's a sense of impunity. And we've seen this recently, and we've heard about this anecdotally. The police essentially see themselves as a hammer and everything else around them as a nail and that's just a recipe for disaster. We lived and we watched what happened in our hometown following Friday's demonstration. Peaceful protesters were pepper sprayed, beaten with billy clubs, shoved, spat on, all by cops who for the most part weren't wearing face masks. An NYPD officer drove a city-owned vehicle into a crowd of people, an act the mayor called upsetting. Officers knelt alongside protesters and used mourning bands to cover their badge numbers, a trend inferred to forecast the abuse that they intended to inflict. On Tuesday, the mayor instituted a citywide curfew, but provided few specifics on how it would be enforced, and five days later, lifted it. Cops confiscated bikes and supplies and trapped protesters on the Manhattan Bridge and a Manhattan judge ruled that people who'd been arrested while marching could be detained for over 24 hours. By Friday, June 5th, thousands had been arrested and some even questioned by the FBI. And two days prior, on Wednesday, June 3rd, crowds gathered at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Sunset Park to demand justice for Jamel Floyd, who died that morning after a corrections officer pepper sprayed him. My friend got arrested with me, and then we got taken first to a Brooklyn precinct, and then eventually wound up at one police plaza where they were taking everyone. My arresting officer started being very uncomfortably kind the second that we were in the wagon. He <laughs> tucked my hair behind my ears and wanted to put my mask on. Things that were a level of intimacy that was really bizarre for someone who had just attacked you. And I'm clearly bleeding at this point. I got knocked to the ground with such force that my contacts got knocked out of my eyes. Like, I, I clearly have been harmed. I'm not going to, like, appeal to your humanity. <laughs> I was in jail for 10 hours. My friend who got arrested with me was there for maybe three. Only white people were released in a time that would have been reasonable. And some people got out in under 30 minutes. You're not allowed to get a phone call. They don't do phone calls there or her exact words. So you just wait until they say you can go. There is no heating there. So for about like 10 hours, I was just shivering up to the point where I like made myself a toilet paper blanket. 
There is a lot of confusion between the cops. They didn't know who arrested me. They didn't know why I was arrested. I was never told why I was arrested. I was never read any kind of rights. I was never announced. I was never given a warning. None of them are from there. None of them seem to understand or have been trained in what to do outside of takedown. If you're going to talk about how do you lower the incidence of abusive policing, you've got to address accountability. You've got to make sure that things like 50A, which essentially hides personnel records away from the public so that police officers who have a history of abusive behavior are never brought to account in a completely transparent way. You just have to make sure that you build a culture where police officers are expected to not only perform their duties in a way that's respectful and that abides by what the rules are, but you also give civilians and the public a way to actually hold them accountable without having to equip everybody with a a phone or even have to rely on a body camera. Civilian recording of police brutality is the primary, if not only, accountability measure available to the people. Departments routinely fail to address allegations of abuse unless presented with video evidence, and even when such evidence exists, police are rarely disciplined. Despite the video of Eric Garner's last moments being recorded and viewed innumerable times since 2014, the officer who killed him faced no criminal charges and stayed on the city's payroll for five years. The video of George Floyd's last moments, captured by Darnella Frazier on May 25th, however, resulted in the arrests of four police officers and a once-in-a-generation movement for change. Today, with these video cameras and telephones that have cameras, uh, everything winds up being videotaped, right? Everything. So the attorney general is investigating in real time. This is like, uh, you know, new age reality TV. Everything they're doing is being videotaped and is being investigated immediately. So the police officers know that they're being videotaped. The protesters know they're being videotaped. So they all know that there's going to be total accountability. It's not like the old days, you know, where you had to get a tip and a rumor and this and you had to go back. It's all on videotape. So there is no pretense or hiding or maybe I'll get away with something. There's no getting away with anything. It's all on videotape. And the AG is investigating and it's happening now in real time. Throughout the recent Black Lives Matter protests, conversations around solving America's policing problem have grown louder and more unified. Some of New York's most popular demands were communicated to the mayor on June 3rd in a letter signed by hundreds of his current and former staffers. The letter demands a $1 billion reduction to the NYPD operating budget and a reallocation of those funds to things like housing, rent relief, food assistance, and health care. It also calls for the immediate firing of all NYPD officers found to have used excessive force or to have covered their badges at protests, and for the names of those officers and their personnel files to be released to the public. Finally, it demands that an independent commission be appointed to investigate the mayor's office and NYPD's responses to this moment. As for 50A, the state legislature will convene next week with an eye towards overhauling the statute. And as for other solutions to over-policing, the one we found most overwhelmingly offered was the adoption of a more holistic approach to public safety, one in which cops and communities share the burden and where issues that extend past the reach of the law are left in the hands of community. I have a heavy heart, a tremendous amount of sadness. And I would say with that, there is still optimism and hope on the other side. This is not the first time we've seen this, right? So we've seen unrest around the death of folks at the hands of of police officers. One of the things that will always weigh heavy on my mind is what else can we be doing? 
My name is Dr. Tracy Kazee. I am the Senior Vice President of Justice Initiatives for the Center of Policing Equity. My role is to work with the chiefs on issues of culture and disparities amongst all of the work that they do and provide solutions and help them figure out so we can avoid situations that we see going on across the country. It just all feels wrong. I mean, it, it truly does. What you also see happening on the streets is what I call generational exhaustion. This is not new. This has been a life lived for millions of, of Black folks. The one thing with the Chiefs, the conversations I've been having is that you certainly don't think we're going to be able to go back to whatever we were doing prior to what you see happening now. There are communities that require a different approach. And in figuring out what that approach is, you have to do everything that you can to make sure that you are on the ground with community and understanding what those needs are. Some of those needs are not police law enforcement related and they don't require a law enforcement response. When you talk about the lack of jobs, when you talk about schools that are not up to par with some of our suburban schools, those are not police issues, yet they intersect with policing in many ways. One of the things you're starting to hear too out of the demonstrations that you have is that there's a disconnect between the officers you know, who don't reside here, who occupy and leave. And one of the things that we're gonna to have to do is there needs to be a full accounting for community, not just law enforcement. And in some cases, that means you may have to defer those services to nonprofits that are on the ground. Violence disruptors, people who live in the community, people who are known in the community. And that means there has to be a sharing of power in some form or fashion. One of the things that we always emphasize when it comes to policing is that society has asked the police to be responsible for too much. It's not only that the police have taken more responsibility and expanded their role, but you know, elected leaders, legislation, increasing the number of criminal offenses on the books has allowed for more and broader policing. And then on top of that, we have seen drastic shrinking of other resources that could better respond to issues that are happening in the community than law enforcement and the criminal justice system. My name is Ed Chung. I am the Vice President of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. A lot of the things that happen in a police department that are problematic aren't because of bad or good apples. The way that officers are trained, not only in official training capacity, but in kind of that unofficial learning from people who came before you. When you're seeing, you know, use of force, aggressive takedowns, um, you know, punches being thrown, especially in communities and places that have persistent levels of violence, you can't just come in with the police or with a government program and say, this is what we're going to do. You have to start from the ground up. So, for example, reducing the number of actual police stops and custodial arrests, especially in black and brown communities where you see more and over-policing, limiting the amount of calls that officers respond to in person, de-escalation and diffusing situations. I think those are the types of things that law enforcement is going to continue to consider and something that people in the community have been clamoring for for quite a while. Now we have to do everything we possibly can to make sure that people are safe. And that's what this budget is all about. Another change we heard shouted across the country is for local jurisdictions to defund the police. And though the call to defund is not entirely new, it seems louder and stronger than ever before. Perhaps because it's budget season and from here to California, millions of dollars are being cut to pay the costs of sheltering in place. In our own city, the mayor presented a budget in April with a less than 1% cut to the NYPD and nearly 40% taken out of funds for public housing. And perhaps the public health, economic, and policing crises that have plagued the city for months now have more New Yorkers wondering what they're even paying for and asking what defunding might look like. We'll talk about that. We've had 
for folks who talk about abolish or defund, in some in some instances, in some nuances, we're talking about the same thing. And I clearly recognize it's not, right? There's folks who are just advocating for police not to be there. I get that. I wish it was so easy to say, let's just, you know, pull them out. And I think we all know not everybody's going to agree with that. And so it really is, to me, it's a call. It is a given in most cities that police budgets will go up every year. From our perspective or my perspective, um, we need to think of public safety uh, at, a, at a much larger level, not only when it comes to budgets, but when it comes to everything else, resources, framing, agenda, incorporating people uh, to do the work. The idea that we're going to see dramatic budget cuts and the police department will most likely be spared those cuts and then we're going to see cuts in education and social services and uh, health care and I think reflects the fact that the police department has always been seen as and has been treated as a sacred cow and that um, it's got a disproportionate amount of power within City Hall. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure either what defund the police means exactly. Um, if by defund the police you mean defund the whole thing, cut the whole $6 billion out of the budget, I don't think that that's possible. But if you mean cut the police department's budget, that is something that the council is looking to do. My name is Daniel Drum, and I'm the council member for the 25th District, and I'm also the chair of the Finance Committee of the New York City Council. Our primary responsibility is to produce the budget for the city of New York. Of course, we have to go through negotiations with the mayor, but um, I personally am pushing to definitely see cuts to the NYPD budget. It is shocking to see the level of support that the mayor has given the NYPD, both in terms of the violence that he claims he doesn't see that happen, but also in terms of support for their budget. So those negotiations are happening, and we need to come up with a budget by June 30th. I think the most obvious cuts could be the delay in the class, or even not bringing the class forward, of the cadets that are currently prepared to go on July 1st. I am also looking very carefully at their overtime. They have about a $700 million a year overtime budget, and I think that's something that we really need to look at, especially in light of what's been happening on the streets. I'm sure that a lot of these officers are accumulating overtime, so it's something that we need to examine more. They also cost us millions and millions of dollars in lawsuits. So all of these arrests, that have happened over the last week and a half or so, ultimately are going to cost the city a lot of money. We have a number of public safety initiatives included in the budget that the city council put forward. We have the end gun violence budget. We have alternatives to incarceration. So rather than using a police department to do many of the things that really aren't part of their role, we want to look at things like that and reinvest our money in programs that we know work and that actually achieve the ultimate goal, which is to reduce crime and end violence. I think that what has happened over the last week and a half has opened people's eyes again to policing and the approach to policing in the city and has made people more aware. And I think that with the defund the NYPD movement, people are seeing that the way to reform the police department is by cutting their budget. And that will send a very clear message to the officers that we're not fooling around. That was a guest segment from the Brooklyn USA podcast out of Brick Arts Media. That is a community media organization in Brooklyn, brickartsmedia.org. Um, check out the podcast Brooklyn USA. Uh, you can find it on all the podcast platforms. I was really happy to um, work out a, a way to share material between Free City Radio and Brooklyn USA. So thank you, Brooklyn USA, for your collaboration. And shout out specifically to my friend Shireen, uh, who works at uh, Brick Arts Media on this uh, project.
here on Free City Radio Podcast. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, this is the 10th edition of the podcast. Um, we're really happy that you could tune in. Um, you can uh, find um, more information about Free City Radio Podcast through Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there and uh, listen. Give us a, a rating if, if you like what you hear. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my email's S-T-E-F-A-N dot C-H-R-I-S-T-O-F-F at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Spirodon. And uh, it's really a pleasure to share um, with you uh, different voices and music here on um, the Free City Radio podcast. Of course, we broadcast every Wednesday on CKUT Community Radio in Montreal at 90.3 FM. But now we're also podcasting. Thanks again for being with us. Um, I wanted to go out with a track by a Montreal uh, community organizer and hip-hop artist, Emrykel, here on Free City Radio. Une balle, deux balles, pas assez de balles, trois Un mort, deux blessés, l'affaire Villanueva Un citoyen est tué par la police, fait l'effet d'un feu de bail Touché comme sujet, pars en pas au bye bye Plus facile de faire référence à Montréal noir Montréal nord, Montréal marde, Montréal mort Plus d'investissement conséquent, monsieur le maire Et peut-être que Montréal noir serait Montréal art hein. Reprendre les citoyens pour des caves C'est pas juste l'économie qui fait en sorte que l'heure est grave On veut te faire peur en parlant des gangs de rue Je suis noir et je t'avoue que moi, j'en ai rarement vu Mais j'ai connu des hommes qui se sont perdus dans le froid de la rue Je parlerai pas de gang, mais je parlerai de mauvais choix d'individus Blanc, noir, brun, jaune et même bleu Le crime organisé se fout de fontaine pour mon vieux Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste C'est pas le citoyen qui est stupide, non Je crois que c'est le système qui est frustre Va pas vivre là-bas, y'a trop de latinos, trop d'arabes, trop de noirs C'est pas dans l'absence de couleurs que se cache l'espoir C'est quand la dernière fois que tu t'es fait braquer une arme Par une gang de rue de ta belle banlieue agréable C'est pas que le problème n'existe pas C'est qu'il existe presque pas, mais on te le dit pas Parce que plein de gens tirent bénéfice des problèmes semi-visibles Moi tout ce que je vois ce sont plein d'organismes mercantiles La ville de Montréal fait porter le blâme aux enfants Si Freddy est mort, c'est qu'ils ont agi en délinquant Nous on voit de l'outrage à la justice et manque d'empathie De la part de celui qui représente le point de vue de la mairie C'est un an de constater ce que vit Danny Villanueva Calmons-nous un moment et pensons vraiment à ce qu'on élève On veut le déporter, jeter le bébé avec l'eau du bain On ne peut en croire que le bébé est pas à nous mais au voisin hein. Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste hein. Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste C'est pas le citoyen qui est stupide, non, je crois que c'est le système qui est troué La police qui enquête sur la police, une grosse job. Commission des droits de la personne, une grosse job. Mandat du protecteur du citoyen, une grosse job. Ministre de la sécurité publique, une grosse job. Décision de pas porter d'accusation, une grosse job. On dirait qu'on prend tous les citoyens pour de prendre le système pour une grosse job Mentir, le déni ici, ça date pas d'hier Regardez le traitement réservé aux nations premières Pourquoi devrait-on espérer avec tant d'impunité La majorité visible a l'impression de déranger Si t'es si ouvert d'esprit, mais donc nos noms sur tes boulevards On veut exister pas seulement dans tes corridors et couloirs Peut-être qu'est-ce si vous nous verrez aussi comme vos enfants C'est pourquoi notre Freddy Villanueva est si important hein? Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste Combien de morts va-t-il falloir avoir pour que le système nous donne l'heure juste C'est pas le citoyen qui est stupide, non, je crois que c'est le système qui rouille
Mais avant de qui chez nous, il y en a un dans ta famille qui fait une gaffe. C'est toute ta famille qui retourne à la maison. 